welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people. The whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank and praise you that you have spoken in history and you have revealed yourself, especially in the person of Jesus. Thank you for your word that the Holy Spirit has inspired so we could understand who he is, what he's done for us, how we are now to live as your people that you've claimed for yourself. And we do ask that as we sit now and consider your word, pray that you use my words, uh, but preeminently use my words to point to your word, your truth. And whatever spiritual state anyone here today is in, whether they're in person or listening online, I ask that you would speak particularly to each circumstance as you are able to do in ways beyond what I can do this morning. We ask that you would minister to us, that you would comfort the hurting, that you'd encourage the struggling, that you would uh, challenge the proud, uh, that you would give grace to those who need it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, I heard a, an interview with a cancer survivor, and she was explaining in the course of that interview how her experience of surviving cancer had impacted her life and changed her outlook. And uh, the one uh, particular quote I remember her saying is, do what you enjoy. If you like black raspberry ice cream, have some every single day. In the face of uh, the, the fear of death, the shadow of cancer, she had decided that you should try to have as much happiness as possible. Now, in contrast, about the same time I heard that interview, I was actually reading a biography of Steve Jobs. And in that, the author noted that many of Jobs' quirky behaviors flowed from a fundamental asceticism. He sought to enhance certain pleasures in life by not indulging them too often presumably with the one exception of buying Apple gadgets, which I'm sure he wanted you to do as often as possible. The cancer survivor focused on quantity, jobs focused on quality, and depending on our instincts, we probably land in one of those directions or the other, but both had views of the world and their lives that were shaping their behavior, their approach to just everyday 
life decisions. In our passage this morning, Paul points towards a particular way to frame our life and to, to shape how we live. He does not point towards either a hedonism or an asceticism, because instead of either self-indulgence or self-denial, he points us towards self-control, a countercultural approach to life that flows from knowing our place within God's unfolding story in history, because the way that we live ultimately flows out of what we believe. So this morning, we're going to look real briefly at that grand sweep of what God's doing in history as Paul points to it in the passage, the story of grace and of glory, and then how that big story works itself out in everyday practices of simple good works. So grace and glory leading to good works. We're jumping into the middle of the letter, so just a little quick context. At this point, the Apostle Paul is a very experienced uh, pastor and church planner. He's writing to Titus, who also is actually, uh, while he's a, a lieutenant and successor as a church planner and Christian leader, he's also been Paul's right hand in a number of his stickiest situations. And Paul has now entrusted Titus with responsibility for planting, organizing, and doing leadership development for a series of Christian communities spread across the island of Crete, which is actually probably the home for uh, Titus. So starting in chapter 2, Paul urges Titus to teach sound doctrine and what accords with sound doctrine. And in uh, that word sound, we could easily translate it as healthy because healthy beliefs and healthy practices foster healthy individual and community life. And in that section, he then focuses in particularly on one key character quality of self-control. We just saw it the once in the passage that we read in verse 12, but it's actually the common thread that links this section with what came right before it in chapter 2. In fact, in chapter 2, you see self-control in verses 2, 5, and 6. And in verse 4, Paul urges training, which is actually just self-control used as a verb in that particular sentence. So self-control is about being able to control our appetites. We're often duped into believing that we have things under control, that we uh, are in control of ourselves and our lives, and that's why I think the last year and a half have been so disorienting to so many of us, because it's really exploded the myth. Uh, but there's also a sense in which we aren't even in control of those little pieces of our day or little pieces of ourselves that we like to think that we are. We often associate uh, out-of-control appetite indulgence with people who struggle with obvious addictions or self-destructive behavior. But just because our appetites aren't especially, uh, or rather obviously self-destructive, doesn't mean that we really have them under control. Have you ever tried to exercise regularly and stick to it, or to shift to a new and healthy diet? or to cut back on your spending, or to cut back on your screen time? Uh, have you ever tried to actually leave the office on time so that you can get home and stop trying to uh, spend so much time at the office because you know your family needs you, and yet there's that's just always that next task that pulls you back that you feel like you've got to do before you leave. Once you actually try to exercise self-control and push back against some of the habits we develop in our lives, we realize that it's not so easy. Self-control is harder 
than we realize. It's a struggle to cultivate, especially when we are surrounded with messages that say, you deserve it. Go ahead. Give, just enjoy one more. Self-control isn't natural. So a lot of us just wonder, well, why bother? Why not just accept who I am and just uh, enjoy who I am? That's why Paul points us uh, to the way that we live in between a specific point in history. We live in between these two great appearances. The first, verse 11, is the appearing of the grace of God that has happened when God most fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And then the second, in verse 13, is a future appearance of the unveiling of the glory of God when Jesus returns to make all things new. And as Paul thinks about history, there is so much, you know, I am an amateur historian. I love studying history. But in that big sweep of all that happens in the world in history, Paul is saying that these are the two great pivots of history that define everything else. And it's that framework, living in that framework between grace and glory, which is what defines and gives sense to Christian self-control in the present life. Because our goal right now isn't to maximize pleasure or to minimize pain. Because we look forward to a happiness that this world could never provide. We are waiting for, verse 13, a blessed hope, as Paul writes. You know, blessed sometimes is kind of one of those uh, religious words that, you know, we vaguely know what it means, but can't really pin it down. Most simply, blessed is just the biblical language of happiness. It probably is a bigger picture of what we think of as happiness, but it's the biblical language of happiness. And since we have set before us a hope of happiness, it actually makes it a lot easier to exercise self-control or self-restraint now because this life isn't all that there is. We don't have to live under a pressure of chasing every possible happiness we could find or avoiding every possible situation that could later cause us regret. If you miss your uh, black raspberry ice cream today, it will be okay because the black raspberry ice cream in the new heavens and the new earth is going to be even better. In fact, you, if, if you don't like black raspberry ice cream now, you might think it's wonderful in the new heavens and the new earth. We've uh, been enjoying getting into the main line. We're in Havertown, and uh, we love going over Kaufmeyers, and so it's actually sort of become a little bit of a routine. Can we go to Kaufmeyers, the local ice cream place? Well, uh, you know, not tonight. There are things going on. We can look forward to a future in which the new heavens, new earth version of Kaufmeyers, we can go every single night. Actually, um, I think also of my wife. She uh, loves horses. She's always loved horses. And uh, one of the uh, regrets um, that I have is that there is no way I can imagine ever being able to provide her a horse. Uh, that she could ride. We have, we've had friends in the past who have shared horses that they've owned, and she's been able to ride a little bit with them. Uh, but my great hope for her is I'm looking forward to the day when she gets to see Jesus, and Jesus walks up to her, and after he gives her uh, her big hug, hands her the reins to her new heavens, new, uh, new earth horse that she can enjoy with him. C.S. Lewis uh, writes, 
if you think of this world as a place intended simply for our happiness, you find it quite intolerable. If you think of it as a place of training and correction, it's not so bad. In fact, Lewis uh, suggests that the very curbing of our present age passions prepares us for future age pleasures. Verse 14 recalls the how and the why of salvation. The how of salvation is through Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Apart from his grace, we're not self-controlled people. We are driven by passions and desires which are sometimes so deeply ingrained that we don't even understand them ourselves. And that's why many of us benefit so much from counselors and therapists because we don't even understand the things inside us that are driving us. We need people outside of us to speak into our lives and help us see those things that we don't understand. But those passions and desires have a drive toward uh, what Paul calls lawlessness. Now, what does that mean? Big word. Internally, we cannot rule ourselves, and we refuse to submit to the rules imposed on us by others. The fastest way to get someone to not do something is to tell them they have to, and every single parent in the room knows it. And if you have read a single page of the news in the last 18 months, you probably can come up with at least one example of how telling somebody to do something is the best way to get them to not do it. Our natural bent is toward law-breaking or bending or hedging or explaining why we're the special case and we should be exempt from the normal rules that apply to everyone else when it suits us. Now, the thing is, when you break laws, there are consequences, right? Now, you, first of all, you could just get caught, right? But whether or not you get caught, even if you don't get caught, there are other consequences that we internalize. We internalize experiences of anxiety or guilt or isolation or broken trust. You're always looking over your shoulder or when, wondering when that person in the relationship is going to bring up the thing you're hoping that they don't know. We stand also as guilty before God, experiencing consequences of lawlessness in this life and the threat of punishment to come in the next. And even if we have big questions or doubts about those things, the scriptures tell us that we live in God's world and there's a part of us that resonates with that even if we try to keep it quiet or keep it under wraps. But the gospel is that Jesus, who had total self-mastery of his passions, total self-control, always submitted himself to the Father's good instruction and plan. This Jesus, who's not merely innocent in a neutral sort of way, but is positively good, he gave himself for us. Jesus said, let's trade. I will give you everything that I deserve, and you give me everything that you deserve. The one law keeper is treated as a lawbreaker so that lawbreakers like you and me can be treated as law keepers and go free. That's the how of salvation. But why did Jesus do that? Why did God the Father, Son, and Spirit do that? The purpose of redemption isn't to secure diplomatic immunity so that you have free bail whenever you get into trouble. 
the purpose of redemption is so that we'd actually enjoy something much more than that. In verse 14, that we'd be purified in order to belong to God and be freed for good works. The goal of God's intervention in history is that, would be, that we would belong to him, that we would be his own possession. Do you have some cherished possessions, thing that, things that you'll never throw out, even if you have to downsize in the future, this is going to go in the box of things that you always keep? That, you are in that box for God. You are his treasured possession. And he wants us to live life in the most fulfilling way possible, the way he designed it to work, doing good works of love and service for him and for one another and for our neighbors. And we're actually more satisfied when we do that. This actually came up really recently in my own home. Uh, I was sitting talking at the dinner table, and I was admitting how I've been stressed and anxious uh, and there's all, in this season, there's all these changes and always trying to juggle all the different details. Uh, and uh, my wife actually said, maybe if you stopped thinking so much about how anxious you are and just focused on serving other people, you'd actually feel a little bit better. I said, that's, that's pretty good. I'll put that in the sermon. Uh, but that's why we always need, uh, even pastors need people to speak into our lives. We all need people to speak into our lives because we have that inward bent towards ourselves. But God is trying to help us in our personal conversations and in our worship to open out to others to do what God calls us to do and designed us to do. Now, if you're reading through this letter and you're using most English Bibles, they have the chapter breaks. The chapter breaks, the way they fall, can distract us from the way that this framework of grace and glory at the end of chapter 2 actually flows straight into examples of good works at the start of chapter 3. Grace and glory are like the two fixed points out of which then flows good works that are described here in the next couple verses. Uh, think about it this way. Do you remember playing with spirographs when you were kids? Maybe some of the uh, older kids who are with us uh, have used these. And you'd put the colored pens and the pencils into these sort of precision wheels that would guide where the pens and the pencils would go. And grace and glory are kind of like the two guides, and they shape the beauty and the artistry of lives that overflow with good works that are the pattern that come out of those guides. And here we see two patterns for good works, uh, a pattern as citizens and a pattern as neighbors. As citizens, Paul urges respect for civil authorities, submission and obedience, probably our two favorite subjects, I'm sure. Uh, it's actually interesting that he's specifically speaking to the people of Crete or telling Titus to speak to the people of Crete. Because the people on the island of Crete had a reputation for being rebellious. They actually had only been part of the Roman Empire for about 130 years. And before that, they had a long and proud, independent cultural history. So they were continually restive under Roman colonial rule. Paul alludes to this insubordinate or disobedient spirit twice back in chapter 1. And on this point, it's great. Paul is writing to Titus, who's writing to the island of Crete, and I think there's a plenty of continuity between the rest of ancient Cretan society and modern America, where coming from our founding, our very founding of the American Revolution, we make a virtue out of being rebellious. Now, while Paul urges respect for authority, 
this is one of those things where you have to balance the two poles, right? You don't want to uh, you, you fall off your horse on either side. And he doesn't intend for us to do evil because people in authority demand it, right? We are to uh, echo the words of the Apostle Peter when he was commanded to stop preaching about Jesus. We must obey God rather than men, even if it means personal suffering as when the apostles were then beaten because of their principled civil disobedience. But on the flip side, you also have the same Apostle Peter together with Paul, the writer of this letter, saying in other passages that God actually is using the imperfect authorities in our lives in order to uh, punish evil and to promote good. And just as no government does that perfectly, so no citizen perfectly lives under it, and yet Christians are to strive to be good citizens as part of our society. There was a British pastor who wrote that we shouldn't just be law-abiding, but public-spirited. And this summons to respect authority is punctuated by the call to be ready, not reluctant, but eager to do good works in the public sphere. You know, it's been a very easy season to play Monday morning quarterback with all of the decisions that our leaders have to make. And as somebody, as a pastor, who has had to make many decisions and uh, types of decisions that are very different from my normal responsibility, it is a challenging thing to do. And so one thing we can do as citizens is simply pray for our leaders in the public sphere, in the private sphere, in the um, nonprofit sphere. Pray for leaders who are seeking to lead well in situations that are difficult and unclear. When we think of a good citizen, I think of the uh, person of Daniel in the Old Testament. He was a faithful and proficient administrator for the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And the irony there, of course, is that Nebuchadnezzar had actually conquered and destroyed his own nation. But he grew up in this new context, and he sought to seek the good of the empire in which he found himself. And then he served through successive different dynasties at, or uh, different rulers and then actually a shift of dynasty. And you never see Daniel saying, well, are you pro-Nebuchadnezzar or are you anti-Nebuchadnezzar? Are you pro-Babylonian or anti-Babylonian? Are you pro-Persian or anti-Persian? He's never uh, looking at the situation and saying, well, I'll help you depending on how, uh, you know, do you affiliate with my causes um, do you affiliate with my people? What are you going to do for my people? Daniel simply saw the society that he was a part of and sought its good, even to the point where he helps deliver a prophecy against Nebuchadnezzar at one point. And it's a, it's a prophecy of judgment that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be humiliated. And if Nebuchadnezzar just destroyed my nation, I would have been like, score, and I got to tell the guy, right? But you don't see that from Daniel. What you see Daniel saying is he's undone. He's distraught. He's urging Nebuchadnezzar to change his ways because he's concerned for uh, his king, but he's also concerned for the impact of what's going to happen to the king on all of his fellow citizens and the society of which he's a part. That is a picture of being ready for every good work, living as an exile in difficult times, and seeking to be a good citizen. But we don't need to be statesmen to do good works. And so I really love that um, the, the frame kind of drops to something that's even more every day with Paul. He urges us to be fruitful in our interactions with all of our neighbors. He does this with two negatives, things to avoid, and two positive things that we should do. 
We should speak evil of no one and not quarrel with others. Instead, those are the two things to avoid, instead we should be gentle and courteous to all people. Interestingly, gentle and courteous could also be translated as gentle and humble, appearing that Paul uses when he's describing Jesus, because it's actually the uh, pair of terms that Jesus uses to describe himself, that he's gentle and humble of heart. And notice that Paul is comprehensive. Speak evil of no one, while showing courtesy to all people, no exceptions. I can think of multiple examples that I have not done that this week. Why? Because as Paul goes on to describe in verse 3, passage I should have included in the reading, I apologize for that, but that verse 3, if you go on, you, Paul emphasizes our human solidarity in sin and that we have a shared need that, for, that all, we all share, we all need grace to overrule us. Paul writes, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The last thing we should do if we follow Jesus is think, I'm so glad that I'm not like those nasty people over there, right? Do you see what they tweeted? we realize that we have this common solidarity. And it's incredibly difficult to truly speak evil of no one and show courtesy to all people. We do that, though, because, as Paul reminds us back up in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We are in a society that is so strident, and it's really stressing us all out, isn't it? There, you could be fearful of every single word you might say or type and how it could be misconstrued or blown up. And it's so strange that we think, of live, or we think that we live in a very permissive society, and yet it, the reality is we live in a society that is so aggressively self-righteous and judgmental, and all you have to do is throw a take out there on social media, and you'll get it back, and you'll see what's going on. I often notice this about a really unimportant part of life. So I really enjoy sports. Uh, but the crazy thing about sports is that we have this 24-7 news cycle, multiple uh, shows. Uh, moving to Philadelphia, I've gotten a chance to listen to a few minutes of uh, local Philadelphia talk radio on sports. Um, I can barely handle a few, more than a few minutes of it at a time. But you constantly have people arguing and arguing and arguing about what athletes and coaches and management and ownership should be doing and should not be doing. And it's just relentless. Uh, modern athletes will actually complain that you can do 99 things right, but you do one thing wrong, and that's the thing that goes viral and will be the news content for a 24-hour cycle. So what Paul is saying is in our society, what can we do, right? Adding to the yelling is not helpful, right? Instead, we aspire to gentleness. Everybody can use some gentleness. Everybody will, will appreciate it. That doesn't mean people are going to be gentle to us in response. Jesus was perfectly gentle and humble and courteous and did every good work, but it didn't stop people from finding problems with him. 
It didn't stop people like me and you finding problems with him. But he did not change how he lived because of our reactions to him. And he doesn't want us to be shaped by the world that we live in, but to be an influence reshaping it for him. Jesus is in this process I mentioned earlier of purifying us so that we can live life as it's meant to be lived. And it, he goes on and says that we, wa we uh, want to be purified, not because we have to, but because we want to. He makes us, verse 14, zealous or enthusiastic for good works. And I know, having uh, been a follower of Jesus for decades at this point, that whenever we talk about how we are called to good works, there is this sort of sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. Because the reality is, Paul says, be zealous. And a lot of the time, I don't feel particularly enthusiastic. In fact, whenever I try to be, you might feel like every time you try to be the self-controlled man or woman described in this passage, I usually end up feeling like a big failure. Of course you do. That's why every week we gather and worship and we confess our sins. We confess our dependence upon forgiveness. But Paul wouldn't have written these things and Titus wouldn't have had to remind people of them if they came naturally. In fact, failing is part of the learning process. I was watching uh, a television episode that depicted this really well uh, a while ago where there was a pilot who has been injured and she was doing her rehab assignment and her commanding officer was telling her she wasn't ready to get back in the cockpit. And uh, the uh, pilot was pushing and pushing and pushing saying, let me get out there, let me get out there, I need to be out there. And so the commanding officer came over to the machine she was rehabbing on and started adding the weight on, adding the weight on, saying, can you bench press this pilot? Can you bench press this? And eventually got very quickly to the point where she couldn't, she failed. And her commanding officer, it wasn't that he didn't want her out there, but he wanted her to keep committing to the process she was in in order to make her ready to do what she longed to do. And when we are uh, having those experiences of failure and frustration, it's actually part of the process that God is using to shape us. We get discouraged by our failures because we think we shouldn't fail, because we're still proud. We think we can do this on our own, but we can't. Purification's a process, and uh, just like we cannot redeem ourselves, we need Jesus to step in for us, so also we cannot change ourselves. We need Jesus to step in for us. We have to trust.